You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope, and this is the second of a series of conversations with my friend Jess Morthup. Welcome back to the program, Jess. Thanks, Pink. Uh, so if you've not listened to the episode where we talk about the Five Leaf Echo Awards, I encourage you to go back and give that a listen, particularly if you're an Australian-based church and you can connect with Jess and get involved in that. But, you know, even if you're based in the UK, they have the, um, what do they call it in the UK? The project they have there, the... It- um, Eco Church. The Eco Church. And there must be an equivalent in the US. I have some US listeners. So um, Green Faith used to do um, something similar, I think. Um, but I just heard a rumor that Eco Church is about to start there too. Okay. So this episode, um, we're going to talk about the Uniting Church, uh, which is at least in my mind, has always struck me as the, the church that's been more switched on in this area, and it's certainly the church that you've been involved in. Is that, Did you grow up in the Uniting Church? Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of your, your home, and so in uh, an off-air uh, conversation, we decided this might be an interesting thing to do, and, and now I think about it, maybe I'll uh, chase up others in future to talk about what their denominations are doing. I know denominations are... a um, an interesting beast and maybe more problematic than they're worth at times, etc. But nonetheless, we'll get a run with this and see where we go. So for those who aren't familiar with the Nighting Church, or maybe are and think they are, um, could you just uh, start by talking about what the Uniting Church is and how it arose here in Australia? Uh, yeah, so the Uniting Church in Australia uh, is an Australian church uh, that... Um, formally began in 1977 uh, with the um, coming together of three Australian churches. Uh, So the Australian uh, Congregationalist Church, the Australian Methodist Church and the Australian Presbyterian Church um, joined together in union um, to become the Uniting Church in Australia. And this was kind of the culmination of an incredible vision of ecumenism, uh, an incredible vision of coming together, um, working together, um, getting past um, division and um, separation and and actually uniting um, in order to create a uniquely Australian church. Um, that would witness to the Australian community. Um, And so the Uniting Church is now the third largest denomination in Australia. Um, And 
it is actually also um, the the largest non-government provider of social services in Australia. Um, so through our um, through uniting um, in in each of the different states, we we provide a whole bunch of services to the community. Um, so, for example, um, a lot of people know about the great work that the Salvation Army does. Uh, Uniting actually does um, a lot more, um, but uh, we're not as good at promoting what we do. <laughs> Interesting. I, I actually had no idea that was the case, either the size of the the um, denomination as a whole, but actually that, that care. I mean, I knew... Um, uniting formerly uniting care wasn't it um is uh yeah. where you runs nursing homes and all variety of things um so that's a little bit of an introduction to to where it is you come from so now in the last episode we talked about five leaf echo awards and you gave some examples across a number of australian denominations so i feel like you've got a, a bit of a a broad understanding of what's going on so could you talk to us maybe a bit about as you survey the, the denominational landscape, particularly through this lens of, of having run Five Leaf Echo Awards, do you think the United Church is more predisposed to engage in environmental care than maybe other denominations? And if this is the case, uh, what kind of theological distinctives lead to this? Yeah, um, so one of the challenges actually that I have at the moment um, with Five Leaf um, is that uh, many people have seen it as a Uniting Church program. Uh, it's not, it's completely independent. Um, but because my background myself is in the Uniting Church, um, and in fact, I've uh, worked for the Uniting Church for many years at this point, um, something I never foresaw when I started Five Leaf. Um, that's kind of um, yeah led some people to think that the two are connected when they're not um i i really really want to have as many churches from different denominations as possible involved um but i think um as well as my networks being within the uniting church um i, do, I don't think that completely explains why there are so many uniting churches who have awards compared to other denominations i think there is um something unique um, that makes the Uniting Church uh, more active on this issue. Um, and I think that there are elements of this that are both theological and um, I think polity actually probably makes a really big difference as well. Um, so in the Uniting Church, um, we believe in the... Uh, priesthood of all believers. Um, so our basis of union, our foundational document, uh, talks about how all members of the church um, have been endowed with a diversity of gifts and there is no gift without its corresponding service. Um, so when, when we're at our best um, in the Uniting Church, we have ministry and leadership by everyone. Um, not just the minister. Um, and I think that maybe that has helped, maybe, um, I mean, this is my theory at the moment, um, that that might be one of the things that has helped us 
to be so active on the environment um, because anyone in the congregation who is passionate about this can, um, you know, stand up metaphorically and make things happen. Um, and uh, hopefully will be encouraged by their, their minister to do that um, because part of the role we see for, for ministers in our tradition um, is to help others to grow their own ministries and, and to serve God in their own lives. Um, theologically, uh, the environment has always been very important to the Uniting Church. Um, as I said, when we had union in 1977, um, we kind of had this uh, opportunity as a new forming church um, to kind of talk to the community and say who we wanted to be. Um, and so in our very first statement to the nation in 1977, um, we said that we were concerned about the wise use of resources um, and future generations. Uh, so that kind of environmental concern has been there right from the start. Um, our basis of union also talks about how um, God has essentially um, called the church to participate in the work that God is doing uh, and the goal that God has for the world, uh, which is the reconciliation and renewal of all creation. Um, and so that's become a really powerful line for me, that, that actually the purpose of the church is to be part of that reconciliation and renewal of all creation. Um, so it is our, our job as a church to, to help God to make that happen um, and to be active in, um, yeah, trying, trying to renew and care for the earth, um, particularly with all of the crises that we're facing at the moment ecologically. Now, notwithstanding the, um, the priesthood of all believers, and that's meant to be, at least in theory, particularly in the more evangelical Anglican circles, a feature, yet uh, invariably it comes down to or can come down to support of the minister, as you've highlighted. And that in turn hinges, I think, upon their own um, theological outlook or training. What role do you think uh, theological colleges in the United Church have played in shaping all of this? Do they? Do they have other courses, uh, perhaps more so in United Church colleges than in other colleges that, that focus either solely on or as part of the broader syllabus on the environment, on creation? Yeah, on and off, um, there have been, been courses on eco-theology um, and I know from some of my friends that some of those have been um, quite life-changing even for people to be part of. Um, so, yeah, those have, those have been very important, very formative experiences for people who've been able to participate in them. Um, but, you know... My dream would be that eco-theology becomes 
a compulsory part of the formation of all ministers, um, because I think in the context of climate change, especially, th this stuff is just way too important um, to be kind of an elective that people can only do if it fits within their programs and the 5 million other things that they have to do. Um, so yeah, I, I'd like to see our theological colleges focus on it even more than they have in the past. Is that in the form, do you think, of a, a specific subject or do you think maybe it should be the one of the lenses through which people read scripture and, and all their subjects? I say that because I was involved in a discussion a year or two ago and we were, you might remember, we were looking at, well, how can we down here support you in, in your ministry? And we were looking at also at uh, courses in, in the University of Divinity and people would develop and it's partly, I think, the problem you're saying that they're not compulsory. People would develop the courses and then you don't get the numbers because they've got to school in mm. one other things. But if you're doing Hebrew Bible and you're reading Genesis and Leviticus and so on in the right way, or you're doing New Testament epistles and you really hammer on resurrection and uh, you pointed, you, know, you hinted to rec reconciliation, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, if you're hitting those right in the right context and it just becomes par for the course. Is, is that what you'd see as, as being the way forward or a subject that is what's needed now, a subject that waves it in your face that you do? Yeah, I mean, I think we probably need both. Hmm. Um, it, it is important, like you say, for, for it to be integrated um, and, and people need to be, yeah, um, when they do their biblical studies, they need to be seeing these themes there and they need to, um, be learning how to to read with an ecological hermeneutic um, but there also needs to be times where we can focus on this issue and we're not just trying to um, squeeze it in amongst all the other things that we're we're focusing on um, and and the danger with integration is that you know people say oh yes we've integrated this um, but, but things can be kind of integrated away to nothing or, mm. or, or you know, um, not be a very, very large amount overall um, once, once you've kind of spread it out and squeezed it in. Um, so I, I think that having that special focus is also really valuable. Makes sense to me. And uh, I, I just want to throw this in uh, just to, while we're talking about it in general and not specifically Uniting Church, just to break some moulds. I teach, uh, and it's only a lecture, but it's a part of a, a course on justice. And so I look at climate justice, uh, justice, and it follows on from a lecture on Indigenous justice issues and a course at Hillsong College. So just to smash the, the preconceptions that some people carry is that these things, seeds have been uh, set and growing uh, in various denominations, but I just want to throw that in. Big shout out to my friends at Hills. Um, so can you talk to us now about the sorts of things that have been done around the denomination? And I know we touched upon this a bit last week. Um, if I play these in order, which I've just committed myself to doing, so uh, people are going to get two weeks of you and I chatting. Um, you talked about this a little bit in the Five Leaf Echo Awards, but what has happened particularly in the uniting churches that you've been associated with and whether or not they were more locally generated or perhaps encouraged 
from the top down, if there's a, a kind of top down structure to the Uniting Church. Uh, one of the things I'd really like for us to talk a little bit about, because I'm familiar with this from a paper Miriam Pepper wrote a number of years ago, is, is gardens and to talk a bit more about those, because I like gardens. I don't spend enough time in mine, but gardens are good for a variety of reasons I'm sure you'll share with us. Yeah, um, so there are um, hundreds, I dare say, of uniting churches around Australia um, doing some really great things for the environment. Um, and I think one of the significant things is that it is very much grassroots. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, um, the Uniting Church has been talking about the environment since Union in 1977. Um, and we've had 12 different assembly resolutions around the environment and climate change since then. Um, so there is that kind of high level um, work on, yeah, I guess theology and um, what, how we wanna live out that theology. Um, but really, I think where the rubber hits the road is in the local congregation. Um, and as I mentioned, with those kind of passionate people who just work really hard uh, to make something happen. Um, and yeah, they, they do incredible things all around Australia and such a variety of creative things, um, which again, I suppose is one of those gifts of a grassroots movement, but um, it reflects the, the passions and the gifts of the people who um, are making these things happen. And yeah, the, the community garden, community food movement um, has been a, a particularly uh, big and inspiring um, movement within Australian churches um, and many, many, many uniting churches. Um, and uh, also it's, it's been a special project that many churches have done uh, to earn their Five Leaf Eco Awards basic certificate. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the amazing things about community gardens is that they're all very different. They all reflect the communities that they're part of. Um, like you might kind of think, oh, you know, you set up a garden and it looks like X, um, but it doesn't. Like it's, a, it's amazing how they come together um, and how um, you can see the community um, within the way that they kind of set up and the way that they function um, and the way that they then feed back into their communities. Um, and so, you know, uh, community gardens provide so much more than just food. Um, you know, from a sustainability point of view, it's fantastic that they grow food and they reduce food miles and they help people to be aware of how we grow food and what goes into it and our connection with land and um, with 
growing things, um, but they also uh, connect people. Um, so one of the um, ministers of a, a community garden that I spoke to once was telling me that she believes that garden has saved at least five lives. Wow. Um, because people in her community who were lonely and isolated now had somewhere to belong and somewhere to be part of community. Um, and so, yeah, they, they are literally lifesavers in many cases. Um, and they help to break down barriers. Um, you know, again, they, they provide somewhere where skills can be shared. Um, they provide somewhere where conversations can be had, um, where, um, yeah, boundaries can be kind of broken down. Like you don't necessarily have to share a language um, to be able to work in a garden together. Um, and some community gardens have done amazing things around um, growing special ethnic plants um, that refugee communities are familiar with. And, you know, they, these plants are important parts of their culture and um, bring important stories and history to them. Um, and so, yeah, by, by kind of bringing that into the community garden, um, then that's something that they can, can share with their wider community and that also helps to connect them back to home. Um, and it can bridge boundaries of um, age and generation, for example. Um, you know, if you're kneeling side by side in the dirt, um, planting plants or even trees or, or um, it, yeah, it creates that space to, to connect and to talk in a way that you wouldn't necessarily in other spaces. Um, Neutral Bay Uniting Church, um, I thought it was cute. They, they have a seven-year-old in their congregation uh, and he asked them to build a passion fruit tunnel within their community garden. So they did that. Um, and another thing that they have uh, is a fragrance garden. So uh, they're trying to bring in different senses um, as part of that garden experience. Um, and yeah, I mean, um, as I said, th th there's lots of gardens as well who provide food to local food banks um, and uh, lots of gardens who give space to refugees in their communities. Um, actually, I think it might've been one of the first church community gardens I ever came across, um, O'Connor Uniting Church in Canberra. Um, they had a whole giant bed that they had set aside um, for an elderly man from the local refugee community who basically just grew the world's largest crop of coriander. Um, but he would use that coriander to make soup for his community. Um, and so, you know, it, it was really important for them. And it, and it was a cornerstone of holding that 
community together that was facilitated by this church making some space available. That's fantastic. Coriander is the most divisive herb I've heard of. Some people love it. <laughs> I, I love it, but uh, that, that's wonderful. Um, I want to shift tack just a little bit now as we come towards the the end of the program. Um, I understand that there's a lot. Uh, so just to, to backpedal, as you, as you noted, the Uniting Church is a uniquely Australian phenomena, uh, but we're, a, I want to say, a country of migrants or a country of colonizers, if we're, we're honest with ourselves. But um, people come from other places and become integrated in our church. And we were talking before the start of this program that there are a lot of uh, people and leaders in particular in the United Church from Pacifica or Oceania, from the Pacific regions. Um, and people in that region, as you're well aware, are on the front lines of climate change. I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about those leaders um, from those communities that inspire you. Yeah, I mean, um, the Uniting Church is really, really blessed um, with the multicultural nature of our church. Um, and with the partnership that we have also with the Uniting Aboriginal and Islander uh, Christian Congress. Um, so, yeah, we have the, th this amazing diversity within our church. Um, and it's been um, a real privilege for me as, as part of the church to therefore have the opportunity to connect with those communities and, and learn from people in those communities. Um, and look, it's hard because there's, there's so many I could mention, um, but uh, for example, um, my friend Lofa uh, is an amazing uh, Tongan eco-theologian um, and she uh, has so many amazing stories from her culture that help to uh, enlighten discussions around the relationship between humanity and creatures and, and wider creation. Um, and I, I lo love chatting with her um, and the way that she, yeah, reminds me of, of different perspectives and the way that she shares language with me and, and um, yeah, the, the amazing words that they have um, that help to think about our responsibility to other people and to creation in, in different ways. Um, really, really amazing. Um, I was lucky enough um, also to uh, spend some time with uh, Reverend Dr. Seth Carroll. Um, who's now working for the World Council of Churches. Um, but when Seth was still in Australia, uh, I got to spend a little bit of time with her. Um, and um, she was working uh, with Uniting World and with communities in the Pacific around um, disasters and, and essentially climate change and um, their theology around that and how they were kind of struggling with, you know, how do we um, see and understand God while we're also kind of, you know, losing our islands to climate change and experiencing all of these cyclones and disasters. And um, th there's deep theological thinking that 
that needs to happen to help people to deal with that. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly since in many Pacific countries, um, you know, they're, they're very Christian and, and the church is, is really um, powerful in their societies. Um, and so that is where they look when, when they need help to, to think through what they're experiencing and, and what they're going through. Um, and I was also lucky that um, our previous Uniting Church president, um, Dr. Deidre Palmer, uh, she held um, one of her uh, kind of minister conferences um, that, I, that I somehow got invited to, um, <laughs> but in uh, Fiji. Um, and so we had the opportunity to actually uh, meet people in Fiji and talk to them about their experiences of climate change. Um, and we had the opportunity to talk to uh, the Reverend James Bagwan, who's the General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches. Um, and I'd met James before and he's always amazing. Um, but, but being in Fiji and talking to him about the struggle that the PCC is going through at the moment to work out how they are going to provide pastoral care to their church community. Um, so, you know, most of Fiji, how, how they're going to give them pastoral care uh, as the sea levels rise, as they're forced probably to migrate somewhere else mm. um, or as some of them decide to stay in sync with their islands um, because for some people you know this is where their ancestors are buried this is their land um, and in Fijian vanua the word for for land is the same as the word for people so the connections there are deep the, the land really matters to them um and and yet yeah it, it, it's for many of them it's going to become a case of either leaving or or sinking and and they ha they are already trying to work out how to pastorally care for people in these situations like you know in, in Australia we're kind of worrying about or oh, you know these things might happen in the future and that's kind of scary. And we haven't even really thought, um, I've actually been doing some work trying to help the church think about how we provide pastoral care for, for that anxiety. Um, but yeah, for us, it's this kind of future tense, tense stuff. In Fiji, it's not. Mm. In, in Fiji, this is already work that they're doing and, and this is already... Um, you know, they've already been suffering. Um, Cyclone Winston was huge um, and, and they've had a bunch of other cyclones and they will have a bunch more um, because they're already facing climate change. Um, they're already experiencing it and suffering from it. And, you know, these are our neighbours in every sense of the word. Mm. Th these are people that we're supposed to be loving and caring for. And I just don't think that we're backing them up enough. You know, we're letting them suffer through all of this. And instead of, you know, 
being, being at the very forefront of demanding action from our government to actually try and um, reduce climate change and, and reduce what they're going to face in the future. Um, you know, we're just, we're just not doing enough. <laughs> yes, it's a powerful reminder of um, what a significant justice issue this is. Um, I can't help but think once more that the, you know, it, it's, it's a form of, I guess you call it carbon colonialism. We're just repeating colonialism all over again, but now it's in terms yep. of, um, as you say, taking away people's lives, their connection to land. This is a theme that you know, Brooke and I talked a fair bit about. And we've got a lot that, to learn from them. That's exactly it. You know, um, they, they are suffering for our sins. Mm. Um, and one of the things about, yeah, it, talking about theology, about climate change in the Pacific is that, um, you know, one of, the, one of the common ideas is that maybe God is punishing us. Maybe we have, we're, you know, having rising sea levels because God is punishing us for our sins. And that makes me really sad and angry because it's not fair. These are not their sins that are being punished if sins are being punished here. This is our sin in, in the Western richer world that is making them suffer. And that's just not cool. And therefore our responsibility to repent and to support these people in whatever way we can, be it um, refugee and asylum seeker, uh, seeker uh, issues and the way in which we welcome people from, from those regions, the way in which we support them as much as possible to continue, quote unquote, normal lives in their own context. So things like the Green Climate Fund through the, the UN, et cetera. So, wow, a lot of issues uh, which we could spend a lot of time on, but we've come to the end of our time once more. Again, a wonderfully stimulating conversation, very sobering one. So thanks, Jess. And um, for my listeners, thanks for listening once more and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.